Welcome to Givers, Doers, and Thinkers. Today, we talk to nonprofit leader Aaron Wyth about the peculiar challenges government unions pose for a healthy civil society. Let's go. Givers, Doers, and Thinkers introduces listeners to the fascinating people and important ideas at the heart of American civil society. We speak with philanthropists, reformers, social entrepreneurs, nonprofit executives, religious leaders, scholars, journalists, and anyone else who will help us understand contemporary civil society's achievements and failures. My name is Jeremy Beer. Thank you for joining us. All right. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Givers, Doers, and Thinkers. We are recording on October 31st, Halloween. 2023 from Phoenix, Arizona. And our guest today is Aaron Wyth, CEO of the Freedom Foundation and someone, as we will hear, who is very much a doer. Our topic concerns the ways public sector unions shape American politics and society. Aaron and the Freedom Foundation, again, as we will hear, think government unions often stand in the way of individual freedom and flourishing, in part because of the perverse incentives they introduce into the democratic system. Aaron lives in Texas, but also, as we will hear, is originally from England. He went to college at Corbin University in Oregon, where he played basketball, although I'm pretty sure I could take him in a game of horse, and I'm also hoping I never have to prove that assertion. Uh, He has been CEO of the Freedom Foundation since 2021, and he has recently published his first book titled Freedom is the Foundation. Aaron With, welcome. Jeremy, thanks for having me on. And uh, Halloween, what a good topic to discuss the scariest thing in our future, which is government unions. <laughs> good segue. Good segue. Uh, we did not plan that. That's great. So we'll, we'll, we'll talk about why they're scary. Before we get into that um, and before we dive into this, kind of sometimes sort of a, a heated topic of, of discussion, tell us about your own background. You're, you're from the UK, but you were, you were not an Oxbridge guy, right? You, you come from humble you know, humble circumstances yourself. <laughs> yeah, that's right, Jeremy. Not the uh, not the Oxbridge or stereotypical England. Uh, yeah, I grew up on a suburb in a suburb of Birmingham, England. And Birmingham, for people that don't know, it's kind of an industrial town where industry died, kind of like a modern day Cleveland or Ohio or um, Detroit. Um, yeah, and I grew up uh, single family home. Um, Grew up very uh, humble beginnings. Uh, I remember one of my earliest memories is my mom and I at a grocery store, and she had a twenty pound note and obviously twenty dollar bill, twenty pound note in England, um, and a calculator to make sure that we didn't go for go over our grocery allowance. Um, yeah, certainly, certainly humble beginnings, and it's kind of. I moved to America to play basketball. Um, I was good. I was lucky enough to, you know, have a little bit of basketball talent, but also I'm, I'm six foot seven. So I was, I had the, the gift of height. Um, and I ended up being able to get a scholarship to go to Corbin university, as you mentioned, to play basketball there, um, which is a real blessing, but moving over here from England, you know, especially in poverty, like I was, you realize that it's a socialist country over there, but you have to come to America to realize that. And then I realized that America is great because of capitalism and because of the conservative values that that we hold, Jeremy. Um, but then you also realize that the left and government unions in particular are trying to turn America into a socialist country. How did you get involved with that cause and with Freedom Foundation? 
Yeah, so I, I realized this in college, uh, and then I was lucky enough to to meet a man named Tom McCabe, and Tom um, was the CEO of the Freedom Foundation at the time. And one summer, I was cleaning college dorm rooms. I mean, literally cleaning college bathrooms to make a couple bucks um, so that I could, you know, have a food allowance for the next semester. Um, and then he, he called me up. My son actually called me up and said, I'm interning at the Freedom Foundation and I'm going door to door and I'm telling um, union members that they can leave their unions. And I'm like, okay, I, I don't really get that, but um, what's it pay? And he's like, $15 an hour. I'm like, Boom! I'm there. I'm on the next train up to uh, to Washington State. I was in Oregon at the time. Like I'm going to be there and I'm going to help you. So that was my first exposure to all this was um, was going door to door. So let's uh, go ahead and then define some terms here before as we go forward. I'm sure you're going to tell us more about those sorts of experiences. But government unions. What are we talking about? Are we talking about all public sector unions when we use that term? Is there a reason why you don't like to use the term public sector unions? Tell us uh, about what we're talking about here. Yeah, so so public sector unions. I I use the term government unions because you know when you when you talk about a government union, it really there's a negative con- connotation with that. Uh, whereas public sector, you know, that usually associated with public service, like our public servants, our, our public employees, but they belong to these. Government unions. So when you think about a government union, think about uh, the teachers union, for example, or the unions that represent state workers or county workers or or city workers. Um, really, um, of course, law enforcement unions and firefighters unions are also included in there. Uh, but we at the Freedom Foundation don't tend um, don't tend to dabble much uh, with those guys. It's mainly it's mainly the uh, people that are working in government offices. And how structurally are government unions different from private sector unions? Like what, like what unique dynamics come into play with such unions? I don't think most people have thought about this, you know? Yeah. So, so think about it like this. When you have a private sector union, you have a union that represents a workforce that is getting paid from a company's bottom line. So let's use Ford, for example. The, the, the auto workers union has been the news a lot recently. Um, so when you have Ford, they're negotiating uh, with the workers union to come up with a contract that benefits workers, uh, but also is affordable uh, for them as the employer. And there are lots, there are lots of uh, private sector unions that are good, and there are lots of ones that uh, are bad as well. They, the, the most recent, I'd say, bad example is um, for those that are familiar with the Yellow Trucking Company. Um, their union that they were negotiating with negotiated a horrible deal and bankrupted the company. So there's always this checks and balances system uh, in the private sector. Yeah, so if in the private sector union is, I mean, theoretically, the incentives are aligned to some extent by the need for the company to be profitable for both for private sector union and employers. And if it goes awry, like you just said, with the yellow truckers union, the company goes out of business. Well, that's that should disincentivize future private sector sector unions from driving that kind of bargain. Right. You just put a lot of people out of work. Yeah, that's right. And you think about where private sector unions came from. I mean, they really came from the coal mines and the steel workers who were uh, literally dying in the workplace, working 70-hour work weeks, uh, child labor was happening, and they weren't making any money. So private sector unions cropped up at that time to really be a checks and balances um, to to uh, people like Andrew Carnegie, who was undoubtedly taking advantage of these people. Um 
But the government sector is different because when you're when you're operating as a union in the government sector, you're no longer arguing with a private sector business. Your debate and contract negotiations are with the taxpayer. And that is a bottomless pit if you want it to be. So what's what's happening is these unions, like the teachers unions, for example, are going and they're using uh, their union dues to go and elect public officials. Those public officials are now sitting opposite them at the bargaining table and negotiate. And someone is meant to represent the taxpayer in this. Uh, that's not happening. And the result of that, of course, is higher taxes, but it's also uh, bankrupting uh, potentially states, but certainly cities uh, and counties, uh, because taxpayers simply can't afford the burden that is being negotiated. Just structurally, it's set up so that a vicious cycle can can take root. Yeah, and I, the most recent example is uh, Brandon Johnson. He's the new mayor of Chicago. Um, and I think he really articulates the problem here. Uh, Brandon Johnson had 95% of his campaign funds, around $10 million, came from government unions. He was basically entirely funded by one industry. And that industry has a direct uh, involvement in his job because they are going to negotiate the contracts now. So Brandon Johnson is going to sit opposite the teachers union. He's going to sit opposite uh, all these other work, all, all these other unions that are representing uh, city employees. And he's going to represent a deal that's going to screw the taxpayer and cost them millions more in taxpayer dollars. Well, I think, as you say in your book, that the, 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 the problem with the structure here is that you don't really have two people on opposite sides of the bargaining table, but on the same side of the bargaining table and with taxpayers, perhaps on, on the other side. All right. So the government, union, and this, it's sort of been controversial, right? I don't, you, I don't know if you know the history, uh, but like, haven't people warned about these dynamics, like from the beginning? I, I, I thought I remember reading that somewhere that like, this is not out of the, oh my gosh, we just now realize this is a problem, but this has been sort of realized for a while. Yeah, even FDR, who was certainly no conservative, I mean, arguably one of the uh, one of the earliest radical liberals uh, to get to get into the presidency. Uh, yeah, even he warned against them because he knew uh, the incentive structure that would be set up if you if you have a government union. Um, and yeah, when he was warning of that, uh, just a few years later, we have uh, collective bargaining that then starts to exist. Um, for for federal workers, that's where that's where it really started. Uh, and then over the course of decades, we've gotten to where we are today, where government unions are the number one contributors to politics in America. I mean, everyone talks about special interest groups like uh, Wall Street or manufacturing or you know, whatever it is. They always put these labels on these different industries, but they never point to the fact that government unions are actually the biggest funder of politicians. Uh, in America as an industry. Have government unions, so we live in a time in which private sector unions have been declining in membership, I think fairly significantly the last generation or two. Uh, is that happening to, to uh, government unions or are they holding steady or even gaining members? It's an interesting trend, actually. Um, so we've seen private sector unions shrink uh, really for decades. I think that uh, the most recent numbers suggest that seven or eight percent of the private sector workforce is represented by a union, which is an all time low. Uh, but government sector has been pretty steady in, in most up until recent years. Uh, it's been growing. Um, 
because obviously government always grows. It doesn't matter uh, the economic times, uh, government will always grow. Uh, so therefore, they've been able to hire more union members. Um, but what's been interesting in recent years, and I'm sure we'll get to this, Jeremy, but uh, we've been operating a campaign uh, to tell every public sector worker in America that they can leave their union and stop paying um, these union dues. And because of that, in the last five years, we've seen record declines in union membership in the government sector, and which means billions of dollars back in the pockets of workers and out of these unions' political coffers. And that, that, so your, your initiative, uh, your work there is the result of a particular, uh, I should say it's the result. It's been energized by a particular Supreme Court decision uh, called Janice versus Ask Me. Can you talk about that decision and, and what, it, what it said, what it means? Yeah, so, so the Janus decision came out of the U.S. Supreme Court, and it was argued by National Right to Work and our friends over at the um, Liberty Justice Center in Illinois as well. Um, and they brought a case on behalf of a guy named Mark Janus. Mark was a state worker in the, in the state of Illinois, and um, prior to this decision, he was compelled to pay union dues. He could pay a lesser amount of union dues because he objected to a portion of them, uh, but he still had to pay about 80% of union dues. I think it was around $700 a year or something like that. So he sued the union, asked me, uh, and basically said, look, I shouldn't be compelled to pay any union dues because it's for speech. Uh, they're using my dollars for political purposes, and I disagree with that, and it's that goes against the First Amendment. Um so that case made it all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court said, uh, basically, yes, Mr. Janus is right. Uh, you can't compel um, political speech, and therefore, uh, you cannot compel them to pay union dues and because it's a U.S. Supreme Court decision. Uh, that takes effect nationwide. So now, since that decision, no public employee in America can be compelled to pay union dues. Before we get to what you guys are doing about that, uh, talk a little bit more and then we'll, we'll go to a break. But, you know, I think there may be a, in some people's minds, the idea that, that unions collect dues simply to represent their members at the bargaining table. And whatever we may think of the dynamics of, the, of that table, at least that's what they're doing with those dues. But that uh, an, an incredibly high percentage of, of these dues are going toward, frankly, political activity that seems to have nothing to do with the interests of these unions members. Is that right? Yeah, a good example of this is uh, the, the nation's largest union, the National Education Association. Um, they, they have to self-report their financials each year. And in 2021, they self-reported, this isn't us making it up, they self-reported that they spent 7.5% of their $300-plus million budget on, quote, representational activity, which means actual services for teachers. They spent over 50% of their budget on political gifts, lobbying, and gifts to nonprofits. And the rest of it went on compensation uh, for their own uh, union officers, for their union employees. So when you hear that these teachers unions, for example, are out there to represent the members and all the rest of it, uh, they should reduce uh, union dues by 92.5% to do that uh, because they spend 92.5% of their budget on stuff that is not going to teachers. We'll go to a break here. We'll come back and uh, talk about um, how you're making folks aware of that uh, has caused a little bit of an issue for you all. We'll be right back with 
Aaron With, CEO of the Freedom Foundation and author of a new book titled Freedom is the Foundation. Hey there, listener. I want to invite you to our 2024 Givers, Doers, and Thinkers Conference in sunny Malibu, California. This is our fourth annual conference, and it's called K to Campus, How the Education Reform Movement Can Reshape Higher Ed. The conference is a great opportunity to gather with donors, nonprofit leaders, and scholars. Many of them you will recognize as guests on this podcast to discuss some of the most pressing issues in the realm of education. Our featured speakers and expert panelists will address K-12 school choice, the importance of donor intent when making gifts to colleges and universities, and many other topics. As some of you may know, we just wrapped up our sold-out 2023 conference in Scottsdale on the rise of the nuns. If you missed it but wanted to join, we are now offering special early bird registration to our podcast listeners for the 2024 conference. For a limited time, use code EARLYBIRD to register and receive a 50% discount. That's pretty good. A special link will be listed in the podcast notes. For information about conference sponsorships, including table sponsorships for your organization, please contact Center for Civil Society Director John Hanna at jhanna at centerforcivilsociety.org. We hope to see you in Malibu. We are back with Aaron With. He is the CEO of a nonprofit called Freedom Foundation and the author of a new book called Freedom is the Foundation, talking about the Janus decision at the Supreme Court, which was when? 2016, 2017? 2018. 2018, which made it possible for, uh, well, uh, again, I hope I get this right for union members to members of government unions to not be members of government unions and still keep their jobs. That was not the case before, correct? You had to be a member of the union? Yeah. If you were a government employee um, represented by a union, you had to, you, you could be a non-member, but you still had to pay the dues. Yeah. Or at least, a, and, and even those dues, you could escape a small percentage of them if you lodge sort of an objection to the so-called political use of those dues. Although, it's uh, it was unions themselves that audited their own uh, how, what percentage right of those dues went towards political activities and they came back with a very low percentage usually is that right yeah that's right that's right they had to self disclose how much they spent on politics and um, the number was not quite accurate <laughs> <laughs> so you all have taken it upon yourselves to inform uh, public sector union or government union members of, of the right they now have to um, not be a member of the union. Talk about what you do and have done and um, what what are some of the reactions you have uh, received to that work, both from members and from uh, union leaders? Yeah, look, Jeremy, uh, here's, here's my theory on uh, government unions is they're the number one contributor to liberal politicians in America. And it's our goal to educate every single public sector worker of these rights, because um, if you don't do that, there'll be no accountability for these unions. Uh, and we want to get their influence out of politics. We want to put it back in the hands uh, of the people. We don't, we don't want these unions to be the number one political contributors in America anymore. We want people to be, um, which is not the case today. 
Um, so what we do is we run a full-scale campaign to educate every single public worker in America that they have these rights to opt out of their union. It's all well and good that these rights exist, but no one's out there telling them. This, the government isn't telling them. The unions certainly aren't going to tell them. So it takes the Freedom Foundation uh, to go and tell these people they actually have these rights. So we run a full-scale campaign. We go to their homes. We go to their offices. We send them mail, emails, uh, digital marketing, uh, TV, radio ads. I mean, you name it. It's a full-scale campaign uh, to get these workers that information and show them where their dues are being spent. And when you make a pitch to somebody, when we go to their homes and say, Jeremy, you're a union member. On, you're paying $1,100 a year in union dues. And all you have to do is sign this form and you won't lose anything uh, if you opt out. I mean, it's a financial pitch that most people uh, will choose to do if given the right information. Do they believe you when you? When of you course, say that? there's always a trust. You're at someone's door. There's a trust barrier. What's it yeah. for me? <laughs> uh, but yeah, when you come with genuine motives and genuine intent, which we do, uh, we're not making any financial gain by these people leaving their unions. It's an independent decision for them. Uh, when you can betray that, yeah, most of them will trust you. And most of them will leave. I'm sure that people come from various perspectives. You show up at the door, as you say. But do you get a lot of complaints about these unions? Like, oh, I had no idea. That's fantastic. I, they don't really represent my views. Do you get that kind of response? I'm sure. Or do you get the other kind of response as well? You must. Oh, yeah, both. you get both. I mean, there are, there's about 5% of the population that are unconvincible either way. Two and a half are completely pro-union. They'll never leave. Two and a half are completely anti-union and they would never join. Uh, but there's this 95% population that are uh, convincible, basically. And that's the population that we're really uh, targeting here. Um, but yeah, you get, we've had some interesting responses at the door. Um, of course, you know, you get the dogs and you get the, uh, all, all the rest of it. And I certainly remember some confrontations that, that I had with, uh, with pro union members, but, uh, for the most part, these people are receptive to the information. Um, and when you can make a compelling pitch to them, they'll leave. Some of this too. I mean, people should be aware, like, uh, I think you talked about this in your book, the service workers union there were i think it was california you, you can correct me Aaron. maybe it's multiple states let's say you were simply taking care of like your mom your aged mother at your home and were receiving some medicaid uh support for doing so tell me if i have this wrong okay uh and, and you were forced to join the service workers union you, you were just simply you're you're the son or daughter <laughs> at home but to get the medicaid funding you were forced to join the and then pay these dues to the union again, say $1,100 a year or so, 90% of which has nothing to do with supporting service workers. And you weren't even a, you know, like a professional service worker anyway. Uh, it's kind of crazy, right? And isn't that kind of how you guys got into this with those workers in particular? Yeah, mind? so it's interesting. Um, the federal government basically pay Medicare, uh, Medicare um, to people who take care of loved ones or people that they might know uh, to avoid them from being institutionalized. I mean, it's, it's a pretty good government system um, for, as far as government systems go. Yeah, it actually is kind of a sensible right, thing. Right. You know, when I yeah, so it. usually what the situation looks like is we found it's uh, it's happening within a family. It's a, it's a parent that's taking care of their kid. Um, they had to leave their job uh, because their kid has some type of disability or it's a teenager or a 20 year old looking after grandma um, who you know has some disabilities uh, and therefore grandma doesn't have to get put in a home um, so anyway pretty good system 
but the unions figured out back in the early 2000s that, well, these people are public employees, so therefore we should unionize them and we should take union dues from them. And the best way to do that isn't actually to have a vote of the members, because we don't care whether they want this union. Uh, we'll just go to liberal legislatures and governors and convince them to do it. So in liberal states in the early 2000s, I think they went to almost a dozen of them, uh, the West Coast, California, Oregon, Washington, uh, Illinois, uh, New York, and a handful of others. Um, they went to all these state legislatures and they passed this lo- these laws unionizing them. So overnight, these people, without a vote, were forcibly uh, made to pay 1.7 to 3% in some places of their paycheck to a union for essentially nothing. Um, so U.S. Supreme Court... Literally for nothing. Right, exactly. So the U.S. Supreme Court took a case in 2014 before the Janus decision that made this scheme illegal. And that you're right, that's exactly where we started. We went to these people's homes and we started messaging to them uh, to get them out. And we started that in Washington State. We got over half of these people to leave in a few years because they recognized there was no value in it. And that money was better served mm-hmm. in their pockets. That's a lot. So, I mean, you've had, this has success. That's going to be my next question. How successful is this effort? Does it depend on the state? Does it depend on the amount of the dues that the, the, the workers are paying? What are the factors that go into making this? As an essential, I think an essential part of running a nonprofit is being able to measure success. And frankly, most nonprofits fail to do this. Um, but the Freedom Foundation, we measure success by a couple of things, but really the primary is by how many people uh, we help get out of the unions. And in the last five years, we've seen the largest decline in union membership uh, since we've been recording. A net 700,000 loss of uh, amongst the big four unions, a gross 1.2 million person loss. As I said earlier, government grows, so that's that's why there's a difference there. Um, and that's cost unions literally billions in uh, in revenue losses, money that's back in the pockets of these workers. So we're seeing this as a huge victory. We're seeing this as a, a wave that's happening, and we're going to continue to ride that wave uh, as we see more and more people leave their unions. And the, be- the best trend for me, actually, is to see more union members leave, but also we're seeing our cost to get somebody out of the union lower. Right now, it's cost us about $132 to get someone out of their union. That's down from last year, which is about just over 150 How have government unions responded to uh, these efforts? Do you have their attention? They lie, they cheat, and they steal. (laughs) Can you elaborate? (laughs) Yeah. So what they do is three things. They lie, they cheat, they steal. They lie to people by telling them that they'll either lose something if they opt out or that they'll basically flat out say, you have to be a member. So we've seen that lie. We've documented it. They cheat. They cheat the system by uh, when somebody becomes a public employee today and they go to employee orientation, they'll be given a, um, a union membership card. And on that membership card, there'll be fine print in there that says, basically, uh, I agree, regardless of my union membership status, that I will pay union dues until a 15 day window in the year. So they compel them into membership uh, before they even realize what they're signing. So you help someone try and leave, the union will say, well, this person, they can leave, but they have to pay union dues until uh, February 30th if, if, if it's raining outside. I mean, they just make up the rules. 
um, and steel, I, this one is interesting. Um, they've started forging the signatures of people on these union membership cards. Um, now, Jeremy, if you or me signed somebody else's signature on a check, we'd be in jail. Um, this is that's a that's a that's a whole crime there. Yeah, this is this is their business practice actually. Um, so we're, we're suing them in multiple instances. I think we have fourteen or fifteen lawsuits that are active on this right now. Um, but yeah, we've caught them forging these people's signatures. Um, I'll tell you one of the most egregious ones is one of these home care providers in Washington State. She lives in Eastern Washington. Um, she was had a signature forged electronically um, in Seattle. You get the IP. We requested a copy of the card, and they sent one with this IP address in Seattle. And, uh, of course, she's like, I never go to Seattle. I certainly haven't been to Seattle to sign a union membership card at some Internet cafe. <laughs> so we caught them in this big lie, and now we're suing them over it and trying to get her a, a Criminal settlement. Yeah, I was going to say, that strikes me as a crime, not just a civil matter, correct? Yeah, but on the West Coast, liberal judges are siding with the unions. Well, they're not even siding with them. They're punting the decision, um, which means inevitably we're going to have to get the U.S. Supreme Court involved on one of these cases. All to your point about the uh, union and elected officials and the mutual uh, dependence that can be formed. Really extraordinary. You haven't even mentioned, you said lie, cheat, steal, but you haven't mentioned intimidate, which is what happens to you and your colleagues often uh, as you go about your um, your work. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, how else do you measure success? Again, I said you need measurables to uh, to know if you're being successful or not. How hard the unions fight back is a measurable. Um, so what they do is instances that we've seen the past few years, all of our events get protested. We've had bricks and bullets sent for our windows in Olympia, Washington. Uh, we've had, I've had hate mail sent to my neighbors. Um, so have our other staff, so have our board of directors, um, just printing lies to try and intimidate us. They've sent people. Yeah. They don't send it to you to be clear. They send it to your neighbors to try to yeah, get your neighbors right, to exactly. hate you. So, yeah, they do a lot to try and intimidate us. They put your name and your address on an Internet website and try and encourage people to come to your home. Bottom line is this. This is how you know that you're being successful is because they're fighting back. Um, And the other thing that I've seen a recent trend of is um, cease and desist letters. Um, They've sent us a few recently. And I want to read you, actually, Jeremy, an excerpt from one of them because I think you'll find it funny. We've been operating in Florida now. for a while. And recently the Florida Education Association sent us a letter and it says, uh, the Freedom Foundation has a pattern of contacting our members statewide with direct messaging, urging them to resign their union membership contracts. This happened as frequently as last week. Please immediately advise all Freedom Foundation employees and agents to cease causing and or inciting our members to sever their union membership agreements. You can like hear them begging through this letter, please stop. And then they go on to say, your client has deliberately targeted FEA's affiliate bargaining units to spread its campaign of misinformation, whatever they mean by that, in a manner calculated to cause maximum damage. Um, I mean, it's, and there's no even legal claims in this letter. It's just, please stop. We're good. You're bad. Um, You're hurting your business seems to be the claim. Yeah. I don't know if that's a crime. 
Uh, <laughs> I mean, I guess there's a novel legal theory one, one might, one might try to employ, but, uh, yeah, I believe you're within your rights as an association in civil society to contend for what, you know, to contend for your view of the good. Here's what their response should be, Jeremy. If I, if I were running one of these unions, heaven forbid, uh, I would start to provide services for my union members to convince them to stay. To convince them that we provide a service to you. Provide value. Yeah. And we're going to, you know what? We're not going to spend all this money on politics. We're going to start spending it on you, the members. Uh, But that is, that is not what is happening. The total opposite is happening. They could even, another option would be to spread the money, the money around politically. Like that's, that's a, if we were sitting here again, thinking like what you might do, (laughs) you know, if you were one of these leaders, oh, let's just, let's start spreading it around to all sides and see, you know, and that we can blunt the uh, criticism that we're uniformly, um, you know, left wing and in, in the political expenditures that we have. But that doesn't seem to be the case either, does it? No, the only place I've noticed that in is red states. Uh, the only money that they give to Republicans are Republicans that in their eyes they can control. And a good example of this is in Ohio. Ohio is a pretty red state. It's actually not a right to work state uh, because the unions make political contributions uh, to Republicans to avoid that. Uh, We've also tried to pass legislation in that state um, and we've been held by held back by uh, union funded Republicans. Um, So I've only seen in a couple of states. Ohio is probably the most notable. Interesting. So what would be the reforms you would call for that you you guys are doing your own direct action, so to speak, but are there political or legal reforms that you all would, would call for here? Yeah. Um, we, we didn't really dabble in legislation until 2020, 2021, when we started to see these teachers unions just shut down schools, mask our kids, call for forced vaccinations. I mean, and then CRT and sex ed, critical race theory, uh, that they were trying to put into our schools, into elementary school kids. I mean, it became a mainstream issue. And uh, because of that, there was a political appetite um, to, to attack teachers unions, to attack government unions. Um, so we started to work with state legislatures and governors um, to implement some reform. Uh, most notably, we call paycheck protection. Um, this is a strategy where you ban the government's ability to take union dues from public employees' paychecks. And Make it just like every other private sector business. Jeremy, if do you you pay your phone bill, I assume that you pay it via direct deposit. I assume that your employer, Amphil, does not take that out. Um, these, yeah, these people should be paying. If they want to belong to a union, they can and they should. But that should be a private um, relationship between them and the union. The government uh, should not be involved in that. And we were successful in Arkansas and Florida in getting that legislation passed. And then Tennessee and uh, Kentucky also followed suit shortly after. Well, very good, Aaron. With I'm not aware that anybody else has really sort of articulated this issue and, and attacked it the way you all have. So are you, are you guys sort of the only only ones out there doing this, so to speak? No, there, there are other state partners that we have in this space. And my theory on this is that, look, government unions are a multi-billion dollar monopoly. And um, it's going to take significant resources, energy and effort um, to, to take that down. So we have state partners, people like uh, the Mackinac Center in Michigan, the Buckeye Center in, um, in Ohio. Uh, there's a group called Americans for Fair Treatment um, that is a, a subsequent group of the Commonwealth Foundation in, um, 
in Pennsylvania. Uh, National Right to Work, they're a great litigation group as well as the Fairness Center, uh, also based in Pennsylvania. So we have a lot of partners across the country um, that are on the same page as we are. Um, like I said, this is a multi-front fight and a multi-group fight. A few years ago, if you'd have said, okay, how are you going to take down a multi-billion dollar industry? You're not going to do it just by, you know, one one attack and one, you know, you're going to try multiple fronts and you're going to do multiple attacks. And one of the most recent things that we've started doing is decertifying unions. For those unfamiliar with the term, it's where we create a new local association and try and get rid of the national union. The national union, of course, is the one that's spending all the money in politics. So we get members to vote in our union and the, our union is a local association. It doesn't play in politics. All it does is collective bargaining and represent employees in disputes with their employer. It really operates the way a union should. And union dues are fractional. So we're doing this. We've done a dozen of them or so, so far. We're currently uh, trying to do one in Miami-Dade, which is the third largest school district in America. So this is another strategy that we're deploying. And you find some places members are open to... Uh, introducing competition into the system is uh, of interest to union members in certain places? Yeah, if you go to a union member and say, look, you're paying $1,100 a year in union dues. Most of it's going to politics. I can put your union dues down to $20 a month, and all it's going to go to is towards, towards representing you in contract, uh, contract negotiations and labor disputes. I, I think that's a no-brainer. Um, <laughs> so, but yeah, it's... Um, it's scalability and it's, it's, you know, we've got to sell this uh, idea to people, which is, uh, which is our challenge. Well, very, very interesting, Aaron. Thank you for your time today. Uh, Freedom Foundation is online at freedomfoundation.com. Aaron, are you active on Twitter? I am. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's just at Aaron with, and uh, I also. And with is with an E on the end. We should point out W I T H E. Yes. Silent E on the end. Um, the British spelling of with. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> um, and then if, if anybody is interested in buying my book, it's called freedom is the foundation uh, available on Amazon and uh, Barnes and Noble. A very good book. It's a very good read. There are a lot of good stories in there. Uh, very troubling stories, frankly. So uh, that's why I wanted to have you on, Aaron, to tell those stories and to share your experience with us. And I uh, really appreciate your time today. Good luck. Thanks, Jeremy. Thank you for having me on. And thank you for what you do at Amphil. Thank you for joining us for today's episode. If you enjoyed it, we invite you to subscribe and or rate and review this discussion on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And have a guest you'd like to hear from? Send your request to our producer, Katie Janice, at kjanus at amphil.com. That's K-J-A-N-U-S at amphil.com. 